you would never really know that there are kids being put in cages on our border right now. You would never know that families are being separated or border. You would never know the scale of the humanitarian crisis. And I think it's actually incumbent upon you, if you're arguing for a more nationalist position, to clearly say, what I stand for is not what's going on on the border right now. My immigration policy, whatever else it might be, is not the Trump administration's policy. But that's not what's happening. Uh, so that was Associate Editor Matt Sipman, whose commentary piece appeared in our September issue, National Conservatism, in which he takes a look at efforts to update right-wing ideology for the Trump era. I'm also going to be speaking with Anthony Andreasi. He's the principal of the famed Jesuit High School in New York City, Regis High School. And we take up some issues of the purpose and place of a Catholic education in this day and age, but more so also an all-male Catholic education. This is the Commonweal Podcast. All right, Matt Sitman, Associate Editor, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in by reading something you wrote in our September 2019 issue, National Conservatism. Uh, Ever since Donald Trump came down the escalator of Trump Tower and called Mexican immigrants rapists, conservative intellectuals have struggled with how to respond. His campaign for the presidency, at least rhetorically, was a rebuke to the stale right-wing orthodoxies of economic libertarianism and endless wars abroad, while his personal life was the stuff of the religious rights nightmares. Over time, however, conservative writers and thinkers have followed the lead of Republican voters and adapted, warming to Trump while attempting to turn his mishmash of instincts and impulses into something more coherent and respectable. So now you've been on this beat for a little while. And why don't you just sort of pick up and talk a little bit about what you wrote in this comment and kind of what you're seeing generally over these past months in terms of national conservatism? Sure. Yeah, thank you. The short piece I had in our September issue I was limited to about 600 words. It's kind of a a broad overview that highlights some of the things going on on the right that I'm especially concerned about and that that you know that we've been talking about here at the magazine in in different ways. And the the rise of nationalism on the right, it's been going on for a while. I mean, Trump Trump hit nationalist notes of course in his uh, presidential campaign in 2016. My old friend Andrew Sullivan said that the most important thing Trump said during the campaign was that if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. So the immigration issue, the emphasis on national borders, the way that played out both with immigrants and and migrants from Mexico and Latin America, as well as uh, Muslim refugees and people coming into our country that way, those were key issues for him. And the right has slowly been warming up to that. Maybe some of them believed in it all along. But that theme of nationalism has become now a kind of organizing principle on the right as they struggle to define what conservatism means after Trump. And, you know, uh, it began, well, like I said, it goes back to Trump's campaign, but a key moment was First Things published a manifesto of sorts called Against the Dead Consensus last spring. And various writers have kind of taken on the nationalist idea and theme. But then this summer in July at the Ritz-Carlton, there was a big conference on national conservatism. And that really was, I think, the key moment in all this, because it wasn't just people who you might have called a paleo-conservative or a kind of more people on the fringes of the conservative movement. But this was key figures, uh, a former president of the American Enterprise Institute, Chris DeMuth, um, a political theorist like Patrick Deneen, Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things, Tucker Carlson, J.D. Vance, Peter Thiel. It was a real 
eclectic mix of conservatives. And, and as you write in your piece, you said this is what really made it notable, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. And it's, you know, I think it really is, it was meant to be this kind of moment where the emerging nationalism on the right was kind of fully assimilated into mainstream conservatism. It was no longer on the fringes. It was no longer just something that Trump was talking about or kind of these, again, these conservatives who were more in the fringes of the movement. This was now kind of being brought into the very heart of the conservative movement. And with it, the money they have, the institutions they have, the think tanks they have, the writers and magazines they have. And so that for me was what made it so important was the mainstreaming of the nationalist idea in a very specific way. Yeah. You know, you something you say something too in this piece which I think is pretty it's pretty incisive and pretty pretty uh, direct which is you say this dressed up trumpism as you call it is being promoted by people who should know better. And what makes right. you say that? Yeah, so you know, if you were to just take a step back and argue about some of these issues in a very abstract or kind of political theory way, of course there's serious arguments to be had about how best to respond to mass migration and immigration more broadly. Of course, you can make arguments about how the nation state relates to, say, global institutions and problems now that are world-spanning, like climate change. But what I thought was especially telling is that, and I did watch a lot of the videos that were posted from this conference in July, I've kept tabs on this for months now, is that you would never really know that there are kids being put in cages on our border right now, based on what you see at, the, at, say, this conference in July. You would never know that families are being separated or border. You would never know kind of the, human, the scale of the humanitarian crisis in terms of the resources that these migrants, uh, people seeking refugee status, their children, et cetera, that they're not being given at, at the border, you know, toothbrushes, pillows, the basics. And so that's what frustrated me the most is that it would not be that hard. It, and I think it's actually incumbent upon you, if you're arguing for a more nationalist position, to clearly say what I stand for is not what's going on on the border right now. My immigration policy, whatever else it might be, is not the Trump administration's policy. But that's not what ha that's not what's happening. And I think instead they're kind of consciously playing fast and loose with that. They want to both kind of pick up on the momentum of Trump and kind of give those ideas a veneer, if you can call them ideas, a veneer of respectability and kind of theoretical, kind of put a theoretical gloss on them to make them seem more you know, persuadable or more persuasive, I should say, than they would be otherwise. But they, the conversations that, I'm, that I saw at that conference that have taken place even since then, you would never know it's happening in this very specific historical context. And that was kind of what I tried to get at in my piece was that, you know, for all the arguments you can make and for all the real debates you might have, it's happening right now in a very specific moment in which people are being treated incredibly inhumanely by our government. And the fact that they couldn't spare a few words about that, I think is really telling. You know, you take up another uh, uh, aspect of this as well. You, you write, it is especially disconcerting that nationalism is being defended on the basis of religious faith, which I think lends a whole other element to it, which I think you, you get into very well. Right. Yeah. It was interesting because two of the main speakers at this conference in July, th there was a number of them. One is Yoram Hazoni, uh, an Israeli-American political theorist uh, who uh, kind of convened it, and then Rusty Reno. Both of them kind of tied nationalism to, to biblical faith, you might say. And a couple that means a couple things. One, very strangely to my mind, is anytime the Bible references the nations, 
they act like that means something like the modern nation state. Mm -hmm. So that that's just a kind of like slippage there that I found very peculiar and that I think is a bit of uh, a bit disingenuous. But someone like Reno goes even further and says something like, actually, the nation serves the ends of Christian universalism because it trains us to have loves higher than our own self-love. So, you know, the parents who send their kids off to war, that's an act of love that goes beyond their own self-interest. And that, so see, like the nation actually is the school in which you can, that points beyond itself to more Christian universal love. And, you know, I don't find the very persuasive argument because there are other ways to overcome self-love than devotion to the nation state. But I actually take the opposite view of Reno, which is that, and I kind of hinted this in my piece in, in the September issue, which is that actually because the Christian, as I put it, has one king, Jesus, and that we view our obligations, say, to the question, like, who is our neighbor, that those things are not defined by borders. If anything, the Christian faith should relativize your devotion to the nation state, because you realize that being born contingently in this particular moment in this particular time within a set of borders that, you know, sometimes are drawn arbitrarily or, you know, settled by wars or this or that, you know, just because you happen to be born in those particular circumstances doesn't mean that that is the source of your ultimate devotion. You should work for the common good, both in your particular communities and, you know, beyond them. But that if anything, being a Christian should relativize your, your attachment to the nation state because you realize that, first of all, you're not going to be judged <laughs> and you know at the end of all things by how well you served your nation state and also just realizing that christian obligations don't map onto our political borders at all times you know i want to use that if we could to sort of uh, turn the conversation to something else we did here at commonwealth recently in uh, in mid august on the website we published an open letter against the new nationalism and that that open letter will actually appear in our october issue in the print issue as well and Matt, maybe you could sort of draw the, the, the connection here from what we've been talking about to why we decided to run this open letter as well. Right. Well, I think one reason we decided to run it was just because it was worth considering. Mm -hmm. uh, none of the editors signed it. Uh, none of us really had a hand in writing it, though various friends none of the of us had a hand in writing it. <laughs> right. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we, we decided not to sign it just to not muddy those waters. I agreed with most of it. I, there are certain parts of it I might have formulated slightly differently. There was a line about patriotism that kind of got a lot of attention. Uh, and again, if I've been writing that, I might have changed that slightly. But that's not to really criticize it. It's just to say that I thought one reason we published it was just because it was worth considering and that in general, we thought it was worth saying that from a Christian point of view, the rise of this nationalism is deeply worrying. And and uh, the, the authors of the letter and those who signed it caught some flack because it did involve, like, it did invoke, I should say, the 1930s. But that's that wasn't to, to do the, you know, invoking the Nazis to win a rhetorical point. I thought it was more of, you know, there have been other moments in the not that distant past in which the rise of nationalism is, you know, proved to end up in a very bad place and that we should at least consider where all this is going. And so I viewed the letter as that kind of an intervention in this ongoing debate about nationalism and a number of Christians wanting to make clear where they come down on that question. And in that sense, I, I did agree with it. I was glad we published it. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe just sort of wrapping up here, maybe you could sort of just bring the listeners up to speed on what's been happening and what maybe we should be on the lookout for. Yeah, I think 
this is an ongoing debate. And if anything, it's picking up steam on the right. Now, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, uh, is coming out with a book on nationalism. Like, I, I think you're going to see more of that kind of thing of right-wing intellectuals and conservative writers and editors explicitly kind of signing on to the nationalist idea. So that's ongoing. And I would just say that as this unfolds, I would urge our readers and listeners of this podcast to really think about what this, what all this means concretely. Again, sometimes the rhetoric is fine or mm-hmm. at least debatable, mm-hmm. things you could, you could engage with in a, in a decent, fair argument. But how does all this cashing out on the ground? That is the key thing for me. And I think that's where it really shows how troublesome it is. But I would also say, as time goes on, I expect that when Trump runs for re-election, this is one of the few things that he's kind of delivered on, so to speak. He is trying to build the wall. In fact, we know he's diverting money he's diverting from, money, from yeah. various mm-hmm. military projects mm-hmm. to the wall. Mm-hmm. This is something that I think you know. We now know that say uh, there's a, you know Tim Alberta's recent book, American Carnage. There's this great quote from Trump. Great, I put in quotation marks where he says, you know, all those Tea Party people, they're still around, but now they're saying make America great again. So I think we're 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 kind of realizing the extent to which the conservative backlash to Obama, to just the, the what conservatism has become over the last decade or two in American life, it really is focused on quote unquote demographic change the issue of immigration, and it ends up being a form of white identity politics. And you're going to see more of that as Trump gears up for re-election. And I think we see it even now in the way he's chipping away at, you know, whether it's birthright citizenship or even, you know, people born on military bases. This was recently came out that they're trying to, if you're basically born on foreign soil, even if it's to military parents, you might not be granted U.S. citizenship. So I think it's just one of those things where it's very easy to, it's death by a thousand cuts. But when you put it all together and you see what Trump is doing, you see what he what he's doing both in terms of policy and, and his rhetoric, and you see these right-wing intellectuals getting more and more on board with it, that's extremely dangerous. Let me ask you this, though. Okay, so you've hinted at 2020, you've sort of a, a, you talked about the, the fact that there's an election coming up. If Trump loses... What happens then? Does this outlive Trump? I mean, we've heard stuff in recent days about uh, people who sort of really uh, support Trump say we could see Trumpism and Trump's being a dynasty, that this will outlive or out, you know, regardless of whether or not Donald Trump wins, this is here to stay. Is that how you're yes, looking I, at it? And I think that's why this conference in July was so important is because all the institutions and money on the right are now kind of lining up more than they have before behind the nationalist idea. And I think one one way to understand it is that Trump showed that there really was an appetite on the right for a different kind of politics than the old kind of conservative fusion of libertarian economics. You know, uh, a lot of Republicans were in favor of open borders for kind of economic reasons and because of how it might have benefited corporations whose bidding they do. And and that Trump, Trump showed that really the people were hungering for something different on the right, both more explicit in its kind of racial toxicity, um, the kind of the racial buttons it pushed. I, that's probably as gently as I can, I can, as I can say it. But also that like most people don't really believe in libertarian economics either. So the, the tr- I think Trump was in a very crude way pointing toward a, a different understanding of what conservative politics should be in the U.S. And you're seeing more and more of the in- infrastructure of the right getting behind it. And that means that this will outlive Trump, that something like Trumpism, it might be, you know, slightly, to, you know, obviously Trump himself 
it's very hard. He's such a over the top figure that it's hard to, you know, separate some of what he's saying and doing from, from his own person and personality. But I do think that, that something like Trumpism will outlive him and that this is what the Republican party is going to, to be and become. And that was evident say at the national conservatism uh, conference, because the, one of the keynotes was Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. And honestly, he's much slicker than Trump, but he's still talking about cosmopolitanism and, and kind of the global elites and, you know, hitting some of the same notes. So I'm very interested to see how some of these ideas will fare when they're put forward by someone like Josh Hawley. Yeah, you got a real different uh, messenger. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who's this kind of handsome, slick, articulate guy from Missouri who has a, a, a very different family life. And, you know, uh, but the short answer to your question is that I think these ideas will outlive Trump. And that's partly what makes them so troubling. It's no longer an aberration, but Trump actually is the forerunner. He, he might even be the John the Baptist to the <laughs> to the nationalist rights, uh, the figure they've really been waiting for. Well, now you've really sort of, uh, I think, <laughs> uh, put, struck fear in us all. Um, Matt Sitman, thanks very much for being here. And I'm sure it's Thank a topic you. we'll be returning to. Yes, for sure. Father Anthony Andriasi is the principal of Regis High School in New York City. That's the famed Jesuit high school, which boasts a number of famous alumni. We talked about the purpose and place of an all-male Catholic education in this day and age, and a number of other issues also came up, including how we talk about privilege when it comes to elite education. So I'm wondering, for those of who might be listening who don't know much about Regis High School in New York City, it's a Jesuit high school, yes? Absolutely. And maybe you could tell us a little more about it, its mission, uh, the characteristics of the current student body, a little bit of its history, since Anthony also literally wrote the book on Regis. Which, what's the name of the book, The History? Um, Teach Me to Be Generous, which is a, the first words of a famous Ignatian prayer. Okay. So, and when and when did the book? Uh, when was the book published? So the the high school celebrated its hundredth anniversary in twenty fourteen, and the book came out in conjunction with the centenary. Okay. So talk a little bit about Regis and its mission. And it, I'm assuming now, as principal, you've got all of that down pretty pat. Well, right? I don't know about that, but um, Regis is distinctive in some ways and not distinctive other ways. It's a, it's a Jesuit high school. The Jesuits have been running high schools, or what we now consider to be high schools, since the first one opened in Messina, Sicily. In 1548, but I promise we won't go that back. We won't uh, sp- stand too long in the 16th century. Regis was founded um, in 1914. It took me a while to determine this when I was doing my research as the first freestanding four year high school, Jesuit high school in the United States. Before that, all the other schools were either departments of a college or university or had an elementary school component. So, and that was reflective of the changing educational uh, styles, if you will, about American high schools, four years, roughly 13 to 17, 13 to 18, in terms of the ages of the of the students. But what is very distinctive about it, particularly, is that it's the only all-scholarship Jesuit high school. It was founded... In the United States? In or? the United States, okay. yes. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't, wouldn't speak too much about the rest of the world, but definitely mm-hmm, in the United mm-hmm, States. Mm-hmm. It was founded by a, an anonymous benefactor, a benefactress, a foundress, a woman who was widowed 
who gave an enormous, by 1914 standards, you know, translated in today's standards, so a lot of money, money to build and partially endow, if you will, but I use that word broadly. Mm -hmm. So for the first 50 years of the school's existence, the school was really conducted on and again, off again as a private charity of this family. It was for, founded for Catholic boys who otherwise could not afford a Catholic education. So it's also distinctive in that you have to be Catholic to go to Regis, which is not true of other Jesuit high schools in the United States or even going back historically. Mm. So the reason why that was done was as more and more Catholic kids were going to high school in the early part of the 20th century, the Jesuits were, were worried that they would lose their faith and they also might not go to some of their Jesuit institutions mm, mm-hmm. like Fordham. Right. So uh, literally Fordham was on their mind. So mm-hmm. they thought we need to start another high school for poor kids to make sure that they just don't go to a public high school and then we sort of lose them. Mm-hmm. So that that was the rationale behind it. And in 1914, to be Catholic in New York for the most part meant to be poor because they were the sons of immigrants. Sure. My understanding today is that the school draws not just from New York City, but considerably from the tri-state area. Absolutely, yeah. No, and that would have actually been true even into the 40s and 50s. Kids were commuting from Westchester, from Long Island, from New Jersey. Wow. But yes, you know, we have, you know, because the school is still free and it's highly competitive, uh, we have a uh, you know, a lot of applicants that come from the tri-state area. Okay. And is it still, what? what's, I guess, sort of the breakdown of the student body? If, if is, is the mission at Regis still sort of to serve the less well-off young Catholic men, or do, does it draw from all kinds of backgrounds? So, uh, unfortunately, as things change in the second half of the 20th century, Catholics more and more moved into the middle class, mm-hmm. you know, which mm-hmm. was a good thing in mm-hmm. so many ways. But as the the public school system in New York City started to break down, you might mm-hmm. say, in the mm-hmm. post-1960s, as well as the Catholic school system began to just kind of close, disappear, mm-hmm. it became harder and harder to find very needy Catholic boys who were also very bright, mm-hmm. who could do the work. So mm-hmm. that became a real concern from the 90s onward. And one of the, the probably the best response the school has had to that was the starting of something called the REACH program, mm-hmm. which would be similar to many people know PrEP for PrEP. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we recruit highly talented rising sixth grade boys hmm. who all have to be from... So dis- they're already on your radar by exactly. then. Okay. Uh-huh. Six, f- between about 55 every year we recruit. From public schools too? Or? Anywhere. Anyway. Anywhere. Uh-huh. They just have to be Catholic and they have uh-huh. to come from de- demonstrated need. Okay. And then we give them three summers, six weeks in the summer of, of not remedial, but really enrichment because these boys sure. are bright. And then 20 Saturdays in the year, a full days of classes at Regis with the hope that um, as they they really start to, you know, bright kids, mm-hmm. more opportunities, when they sit for the Regis exam, they'll do about just as well as kids from more advantaged backgrounds. And this year, out of an incoming class of 136 or 35 kids, mm-hmm. 20 are coming from the REACH program. Okay. And there are some other kids also who come from other disadvantaged backgrounds, but we've if the school's going to stay faithful to its mission, mm-hmm. then the, the other things have had to change, and they've been trying to do that, the board of trustees, et cetera. Sure. So what's the total student body? You said it's about 130 coming in, so it's over about five. Like 525, okay. 530. Oh, so pr- fairly sizable. Right. Okay. And, you know, it must be, I guess, it's sort of a pretty big job. And you are a priest at a, at a parish in downtown Brooklyn at, at St. Boniface, and you've had significant responsibilities there as well. So how do you 
balance this? Uh, I mean, these are, you know, obviously being principals, a full-time job and being, well, you've been pastor at St. Boniface. I think a lot of priests nowadays have to wear multiple hats. Mm -hmm. I mean, not surprisingly, especially with men being pastor of one, two or three churches. Mm -hmm. So that's a little, I mean, I'm not that much of an anomaly in that Mm -hmm. sense. I'm lucky that the other men in my community um, help me, support me Mm -hmm. in terms of we try to work collaboratively on that. But yeah, sure, there are times, though I have to say sometimes when um, I know with the married people that I work with, you know, when they go home in the evening or the weekend, it's not like those who have children, those who have aging parents, it's not like they... um, just have the weekend off. They just get to kick back from what as a parent, I know that that's what I do. (laughs) So I I would say that I, um, you know, obviously I do have demands on the weekends, but Mm -hmm. I also, you know, I try to keep at least one day a week to just kind of catch my breath. Sure. I have a number of teachers in my family and a number of uh, educators uh, on the administrative level as well. And one of the things they talk about, not necessarily always complaining, but it certainly seems like a challenging is a challenge is having to deal with parents of students. Is that something that you find yourself facing as well? Or Well, I would say, obviously, you know, parents are very much invested in the education of their kids. Most, the vast majority are. And, um, Nowadays, with uh, accessibility, you know, obviously when we were in high school, if our parent wanted to reach out to a a teacher, you had to pick up the phone and it was Mm -hmm. a cumbersome process. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, people didn't have voicemail at school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now with email and instant connectivity, there's also sort of a sense of uh, constant almost regular communication at times. And one of the things we try to do, obviously with a high school level, our young people is that teaching them to take ownership of what they're doing, not necessarily have parents come in immediately when there's a concern, trying to to form them that way. So yeah, Mm. parents, you know, vast majority are are, are supportive, but sometimes you're having to help them understand how to navigate this too. As a historian, uh, do you bring something special or unusual to the job? I I hope I do. You know, in in looking at the expanse of the school over 100 years where every once in a while something will come up in a meeting and someone will say something like, well, we've always done it this way. And there's been a couple of times say, well, actually, we haven't always done it this way. I often like to to quote that great line from the uh, Italian novel, The Leopard. Mm -hmm. I believe it was uttered to an Italian Jesuit, a fictional Italian Jesuit, Sicilian. Mm -hmm. If we want things to remain the same, we're going to have to change. And I, I find myself saying that if what is core is true and we want to preserve since a lot of other things often have to change. Yeah, yeah. It's a school, obviously, that's cloaked in history and tradition, a, a number of uh, relatively well-known graduates, and certainly graduates who go on to prestigious positions, sometimes public. But this generation of students, I suppose, is there something, are there special challenges in this day and age that you find yourself having to discuss with them or deal with with them? Yeah, I would say that one thing in particular we we worry about is student stress. There was just a study put out within the last 18 months about the invention of the iPhone goes back to 2007 or eight. So we're about a decade into it. And if you look at the increase of teenage depression and anxiety, it spikes almost immediately Hmm. in concomitant with the the popularization of the iPhone. Hmm. And helping students to manage their digital world, their homework, 
you know, obviously kids who've gone to demanding schools, competitive schools have worked hard for many generations. I think we're at a new place now where we need to help our students strategize better on how to manage all this, hmm. the stress. You know, we, we, do, we, we do an annual survey of their sleep habits and kind of an anonymous thing. How, and you, of course, you always have to wonder, like, how, how accurately are they reporting their sure. own sleep? Uh -huh. But there are concerns. Like, you know, if a, if a kid is getting less than five hours of sleep a night, there is no way yeah. he, can, he or she can be healthy. Right, right. And if they're reporting them, yeah, yeah you know there's going to be problems. We've sort of zeroed in on the on the on the specifics of Regis, but what what do you think? I mean, as as principal of a school like this, how what would you talk about the place or the purpose of a Catholic secondary education in this time? Yeah, obviously that's a very you know pertinent, important question. I mean, given the crisis, and now I mean we seem to be making a plural crisis in the mm. church of the last twenty years. Clearly, more and more. Catholics who may be Gen Xers who have children school age now are asking themselves, even if I can afford this, do I want this? Mm -hmm. And that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've spoken to other Jesuit high school principals who have had to face that very hard reality. For those parents who still trust the institutional church that on the most basic level that their sons or daughters are safe mm. in this environment. Mm. Then you have to ask, answer the next question is, since except for places like Regis, most places mm. come with a, you know, somewhat of a hefty price tag. Mm -hmm. What value added are, are you getting from that? Especially in terms of, you know, human formation, spiritual formation. Is the school really going to be something quite different than what you might be able to get in your local public school, which might be a very good, strong public school. Mm -hmm. And I think those questions are very much on the minds of administrators, uh, recruitment officers, because on the high school level, it's there on the college level, and now yeah. it's there on the high and school so level. So it's come down to that yes. too, sure. I also want to talk about, and we've talked about the, the purpose or value of a Catholic secondary education, but if I may, since sure, sure. Regis is all male, how do you talk about the place and purpose and value of a single-sex Catholic education in this time? I think people have sort of looked at certain examples that have been in the news over the past uh, year or so. Uh, you know, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, something was revealed about a certain period of time in a, among a certain group of students at a, at a prestigious Catholic, all-male Catholic school in Washington, D.C., so I guess this is a, it's kind of a multi-part question. So how do you sort of factor these things into your thinking as an educator? And how do you sort of see it on the larger scale about all-male education? Sure. I mean, obviously the data or the research for all girls schools, there seems to be a fair amount of strong research analysis that for some girls, that can be an excellent place for them to be. So mm -hmm. I, I'm by no means an expert on this, but I don't feel that there is a whole lot of re, uh, data for the, other, for the other side, for all boys. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, most of these schools are historically, that's the way they are because that's the way they were founded 100 mm -hmm. plus years ago. I know, I would say for Regis and for other all boys Catholic high schools, there's always, if, a, if an all-boys high school goes co-ed, there's always an effect on neighboring Catholic girls' schools. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the Catholic girls' schools are very against 
the all boys school going co-ed. Because mm-hmm. if you look around the country, a lot of times they tend to close when mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. So in generally, you have to, I mean, unless you really don't really care about how you affect other people, you want to keep that in mind if a school is going to go co-ed. I would say in particular for Regis, if I think our uh, challenge in the years ahead is how to create... If, you know, there are some people in the Regis community who say, oh, you know, Regis got co-ed. I mean, sure, it's it's a valid conversation, mm-hmm. of course. I'm more concerned that we um, are are really giving more and more spaces to kids who come from less advantaged backgrounds. I think in terms of pacing of change, if you were to go co-ed and then also say that, um, you know, now we're only going to take X number of kids or only kids who come from that – that much change in an institution can be extraordinarily dislocating. Mm-hmm. And I see how we're just managing right now, trying to take in more and more students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, mm-hmm. don't have the resources at home. Mm-hmm. And we, ha- we want, not only do we want to take those boys in as ninth graders, we want to make sure they're a success when they graduate four years later. What do you make of, I mean, if people sort of challenge you on this, and I know that um, my, um, I have relatives and, and friends who've come through all male uh, Catholic education and, and secondary environments. And um, they sort of are, are posed the question, well, you know, the world includes women. No, of course. And is something sort of either being ignored here or sort of lost or overlooked or just not thought about? Uh, is this something that you sort of have to think about at a place like Regis? And how do you instill uh, certain values? How do you instill certain basic knowledge about how mm-hmm. to interact with members of the opposite sex? Is this uh, – it, oh, Of course. will be in the workplace, obviously, uh, college campuses. I, this is not – you know, it's it's 2019. So, sure. Yeah. Oh, no, of course. I mean, if we didn't, I mean, I don't know what we'd be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say about 40 percent of the faculty, 35, 40 percent of the faculty is female. Mm-hmm. We had a – this past year, we kind of dedicated the whole year mm-hmm. towards – uh, the title of the year was the other fi- the fifty one percent the experience of women in America today, mm-hmm. and it culminated with a um, a whole study day in May where the whole school came to look at this topic. Mm-hmm. We have you know we have a diversity club. We had a group of boys this year start a group called He for She. Mm-hmm. So we we very much see how important this is, and that it has kind of exposing forming our boys to be just and honorable and thoughtful in their interactions with women in every sense of the term, as well as questioning those larger macro issues, not Mm. just about their own personal interactions, but societal structures where women are treated, opportunities that are still denied from them. I would say we that's very much on our radar that we Mm. want to make sure that this is part of their formation Mm -hmm. and curriculum Mm -hmm. during the four years. Mm. Obviously, we see sometimes this comes more of the fore when terrible things happen, and we see that and we say, oh, geez, mm-hmm. this some historical thing happened many decades ago. Mm-hmm. Well, what are we doing now to make sure that the current generation won't make those same mistakes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we do that with issues of, uh, of race also. Sure. You know, those tricky, thorny mm-hmm. issues our society looks at constantly, mm-hmm. they obviously don't stop at the entrance of the, the door to the mm. school. Mm-hmm. The boys are bringing in all those experiences, all of that, some of that unease sure. uh, into the school. And we have to deal with that in a, in a meaningful and helpful way. You know, the 2016 election, which obviously mm-hmm. electrified our nation in so many ways. Mm-hmm. 
we found way, important ways to make sure that we had places for students to discuss this mm-hmm. in constructive, meaningful mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. One of my great fears, and I've had to express this to a couple people, is I really don't want the culture wars fought in high school. It's a very difficult thing. Yeah. I think that to be, it's, we could, we see how it's ripping apart our nation. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, when you're dealing with children, mm-hmm. 14, 15, 16, we have to be particularly careful. So sometimes I'm, I'm a little more hesitant to take on extremely mm. edgy topics because mm-hmm. I just feel like they're important, but they have to be framed correctly. Mm-hmm. College is even a different. Sure, 18, sure. 19 is a huge difference between 14, 15. Yeah. yeah. That would be one of my, the, if there's something that keeps me up at night, it's something about, is there some um, strain of the culture war that's going to get into our school? Yeah. I really hope we don't. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I appreciate your mentioning that, you know, and it, it, it makes me think, too, of what you were talking about earlier with sort of the exposure to, you know, digital technology. And uh, I'm assuming, or maybe not, I don't know what kind of policy you might have at, at Regis, but these kids are probably bombarded with information from the outside about any number of things. I mean, it could be sort of real existential issues like climate change, for instance. Is this something you're sort of finding, too, that, I mean, they are just bombarded with information? And do they come to school sort of bearing any of this weight? Or, I mean, some of them, yeah. I mean, some of them definitely caught yeah. get caught up in some of these larger conversations. And mm-hmm. as the older they get, then more and more of them seem to be more interested in that. One thing in particular that we've done recently, just on that, maybe we used to have young Republicans and young Democrats club. We actually combine them today with, under the same moderator. Hmm. So the idea is that now obviously, no, very few kids are voting yet because yeah. most of them are not eighteen. Yeah. But when it comes to having conversations about these issues, we we don't want to immediately begin on an adversarial, sure. right? especially at that age. Yeah. And that's that's important. Mm-hmm. When we had the, you know, obviously the church was reeling, it's still reeling of the crisis with McCarrick. We actually had an assembly with the students, with at least the seniors, talk about how to kind of understand all how the media is reporting on this. It wasn't so much of an assembly on, Though I think we might have done a better job, we might have done a different assembly of how can you remain Catholic mm-hmm. in the light of this. Right. Actually, that's not how we framed it. What we were trying to help them understand is all these various stories that are coming out, some of them you have to kind of look at the outlet that's putting them out. Yeah. Obviously, and like obviously Vigano, because these kids would still be pretty young. They wouldn't yeah. necessarily know that. We were trying to help form them to be thoughtful consumers, at least, yeah. of some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's an important thing now, too. And, and I know that I have a, uh, I still have a, a one a child who's high school age. And yes, there is sort of this notion of how, how to interpret uh, the media signals that are coming at you. You know, this is not necessarily a world in which, uh, well, that we grew up in with, uh, you understood the news to be objective, even if it may not have been as objective as we like to believe or right, recall, right. but now certainly it seems like so much of it has uh, some sort of other motivating factor or comes from some sort of political position. Yeah, I want to maybe like uh, pull back again a little sure, bit sure. to talk about uh, sort of Catholic education in general because, um, and this is something I know you and I have uh, discussed previously and it's sort of in the news in our Brooklyn Diocese and it's certainly a factor and is something I think that's being, being experienced nationwide, if not worldwide, but is uh, the continuing viability of, of Catholic education in, in our 
diocese uh, recently, it was announced that two all-girls Catholic high schools will be ceasing operations. And I don't. What, how do you sort of go about? Regis is obviously its own animal. Right. Sure. It's, sure. it's got its its financial support. But what is the model for maintaining viable and vital Catholic secondary education, or for that matter, primary education? But let's you know. Is there? Yeah, does, I mean, does, is it survival of the fittest? I mean, you mentioned how sometimes if a school starts accepting a male school starts accepting young women as well, the the the, the girls schools shut down. It, it, is this it's really zero sum? You think or? In fact, and I wouldn't. One of the high schools that you mentioned, uh, one of the ones that's closing the Brooklyn Diocese, and I don't know the the numbers in particular, but I, I, an Arius boys high school went co-ed and I'm sure that had a collateral effect okay. on the girls high school for for about a hundred years we had the, the perfect model of how to run Catholic schools and it was basically the free labor of nuns mm. <laughs> and I say that you know obviously somewhat ironically but yeah. for about a century it worked and um, since the late 1960s we really have not been able to figure out a model that works you're also dealing with, um, a, take, for example, a, a place like New York, which is obviously a very high-tax state. If you're a property owner, if you own a home in the suburbs and you're paying 20 thousand dollars in property and school taxes, it gets very hard then to dig into your pocket for another six, eight thousand mm-hmm. for a Catholic school you may even want. Yeah. You know, and, and paying Catholic school teachers a living just wage. Yeah is very difficult mm-hmm. given those models. So I, I just, with the declining or the shrinking of the middle class in America today, I think what we're seeing with the Catholic schools, a similar reaction. You're having a small number of very expensive Catholic schools, mm-hmm. which are people who are in the upper middle class, the wealthy can afford. And then you have some Schools like, well, Regis, if you will, is by one, but some schools like the Jesuit model, Cristo Rey schools, some other schools that are practically free, mm-hmm. but they're for the poor. Mm-hmm. But the middle class, there's not much for them. Yeah. And I think you see that in a lot of other things beyond just Catholic schools. I mean, we're going to start to see that at higher ed, obviously. Yeah. If you can pay full freight at one of the top colleges in the country, mm-hmm. that's the. But if you're very poor, then maybe you'll qualify for totally free tuition. Mm-hmm. But the middle class is squeezed. Yeah, yeah. How do you? Um, and because you sort of uh, you nodded to it in your comments uh, just now. Uh, sort of some of these schools that are very uh, well they they serve a very well off mm-hmm. student body, and there's a sense sometimes in some of these places that there may be privilege that could create a little tension with what we understand to sort of be uh, you know a catholic response to people in need or people on the peripheries how how can that well, what are your thoughts on this and how can this be balanced how can this tension be you know reconciled or what what special challenges are presented by this situation you know I would say the one, and this is where the historian in me comes out. So some of these, what we might call more high-end Catholic schools, they actually existed even in the 19th century. There were these fancy academies Mm -hmm. for wealthy. There weren't that many wealthy Catholics, but they existed. This would have been true in Europe also. So, I mean, one of the ones, the, the, the Sacred Heart schools, the Convent of the Sacred Heart, the Religious Sacred Heart, 
pretty much in this country, many of their schools were for wealth, girls who were wealthier. Now, one of the reasons why the nuns did that was the higher tuition they charged at those schools helped underwrite the nuns who were teaching at the free schools. Okay. So it was actually kind of an interesting fundraising model that worked in an earlier day. Mm -hmm. But I think in, in those schools then and now, they have, those that are doing the job right, have put together formational programs, social justice programs that very much expose and form their young people, young boys, young girls, towards the responsibility that is on them as Christians. I'm not sure if an earlier generation would have called it a noblesse oblige. Maybe it was. I can't speak to that. But today, I wouldn't say that's the way I would see it. I would mm -hmm. say, you know, I know some of the people, good people who work at some of the more expensive Catholic girls' schools in and around New York City. And I would say they put a lot of resource in, resources into social justice, Christian service programs to expose their students to a much wider world. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, then then I think you're really, I'm not sure what your mission is then. Mm -hmm. How about the, uh, I guess, the role and influence in, in some places, I guess, the outsized influence and the outsized uh, uh, involvement, I suppose, of lay people in the administration and uh, in, in, in top positions at these schools? Is that something that I guess is just inevitably going to sort of be the norm? It is, and I th I think it's an. I mean, it's the norm already. It's, but, I and it's an unalloyed blessing, I would yeah. say. And I can speak to something that's a, somewhat of a, obviously a sad topic, but um, with this clergy sex abuse mm -hmm. crisis, at the various Jesuit schools I've worked at, they all have a board, of, a board of trustees, a real vigorous board of trustees that the president really has to answer to, mm -hmm. and, and in, in Regis looking, you know preparing for any past accusations, historical, and that's true for all other Catholic schools. What I've noticed in some of these meetings is now um, that one or two or three priests that are in the room, they're surrounded by 15 or 20 lay people, mm -hmm. men and women, mm -hmm. who are asking very hard, honest questions about this. And the priests are having to be on their toes mm -hmm. to make sure that they have the right answers both making sure children are protected today mm -hmm. as well as responding to past. Mm -hmm. And I think that obviously the church going up a level to bishops and dioceses, they have to find models like that that work that way too, mm -hmm. to have lay people, parents, men and women, unmarried people too. Not, they have yeah. to have the whole diversity mm -hmm. so that these very difficult questions are being faced by good people of a lot of talent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's the end of one school year, but we're on the verge of beginning another. What are you looking for in the 2019-2020 school year? What do you hope to accomplish? What are you sort of maybe dreading? What are some challenges that you see coming up in the in the near term uh, for, for Regis and maybe even slightly in the longer term? We just went through a strategic plan that we're trying to address in some ways. And I'm looking forward to in the fall implementing a couple of new things. We're trying to expand choice to upper level students between and juniors and seniors in terms of more course offerings in the arts and in computer science. The program at Regis was a little more pretty prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to help kids have more choice with that. Um, we have some new faculty members, some very talented young faculty members coming on. It's always been my first time really to to work with a whole crop of new teachers to help form them and help them bring their gifts to the school. 
I'm actually, I would say, far less fears than I had last summer in that because at we least got a year I, under your belt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> at least I kind of gone through a year and mm -hmm. I kind of know where the um, where the pressure points are. Mm -hmm. That that that's a good thing. Yeah, no, everything that, in terms of the news, and also I guess the other thing is pacing, knowing that really you might just have one or two things a year as a as a as a leader, as an education leader, that you really want to. If you have too many things that you try and do, it, I mean, obviously in running a you know a magazine of opinion, mm -hmm. you can't change everything. You want to do everything new constantly. Yeah, I have to fight that temptation. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even if you have human nature, you want to always do something. Right, and even if you have unlimited resources, and which none of us do, but even mm -hmm. if they, there's also a sense of helping people have a certain pace of change they can deal with. Mm -hmm. Even students, which always is amazing to me, these are you know kids who are only there as a freshman year. They'll say, "Are you changing such and such a thing?" And they seem so upset about. It. And you think it's so. My gosh, you've only been here one year. You think, but p humans by nature are very, we get a little nervous with change, especially when we're not the ones necessarily driving it. Sure. So yeah. that has something I've tried to, I'm keep reminding myself. It's good to be mindful of that. Yes. Or not yeah. just yourself, but of course the students that you're, that you have in uh, right. your care. Um, one last question. Please, please. Is Latin a requirement? No, it hasn't been a requirement for about the last 35 years. So. You're kidding. I would have thought Regis would have been the, one of the last. No, ones. no. It's, <laughs> and we still offer it in about. It's an elective. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.